right, now today's readings are Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 18, and Luke 4, 1 to 13. They can be found on pages 170 and 948 of the Bibles next to you. This is God's word, Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 18. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you out of he brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. Luke 4, 1-13 Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord.
First things first, I uh, think it's, I'm competing with a graphic image here while I preach, so I thought maybe I'd just do that. <laughs> and it was pointing in my direction, so. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, uh, we come to you as we listen to these words and we wonder what you might be saying to us through them. I pray that you would bless this time of listening. I ask that despite all the different places that our journeys have brought us, despite all the different conditions that we find our souls in this morning, despite all the different sets of emotions that we bring into this room, that you would speak nonetheless to all of us through your words of grace and through your story of grace. And even though as we sit here we don't want others to know it, we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And your story of grace says that you move towards messy lives and messy people, people who don't have it all together and never will. And you move towards those lives so that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, the truth is now through Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And the great difficulty, the great mountain of of living the Christian life is just believing that that's true. Minute by minute, day by day, week by week. And so we come back here to hear these words again, to remind us, not that we linger in our brokenness, but that we have been made whole by your grace and by your love. So would you do some of that work now through this time of listening to your scripture? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was the summer of 1998. Almost uh, my last year, of going to go into my last year of college. I was dating Lisa, my wife, long distance, and she lived in McAllen, Texas. She was done with college, living in a house with other nurses who were um, getting their first job out of college. McAllen, Texas, right down there on the border. And uh, one of her other roommates had a boyfriend as well, long distance, and, and he and I, you know, kind of got connected to each other, and so we moved down together, got an apartment together, and got our resumes out to search for those summer jobs. And so um, in this scorching Texas heat, we went out and tried to find jobs, and he and I both ended up getting jobs in restaurants. And we both got exposed to the strange excesses of people and food. I got a job at Chili's Grill and Bar, I was terrible at it. I was a server, and it just is, it's, I, I, you know, it just confirmed, go into ministry, you know. <laughs> just, it, I was just really bad at just all the juggling of different people's requests and remembering things and um, what they called consolidating. Um, but one of the things that, that the excess I was exposed to was um, in that back area next to where they were making all the food was this huge garbage can. And just the, the number of times that I would see, I mean, it just continued to stun me. The number of times that you'd see an almost full plate of food, you know, just whoosh, just dumped right into the garbage, just all this food just going in. And sometimes you're thinking, what did these people even come out to eat for? Like, what is going on? And of course, yeah, maybe some people are just, it's just a social thing, but just all this food whoosh, just piling up in the garbage. My friend, Conrad, my roommate, he got a job at the Golden Corral. <laughs> the buffet place, right? All you can eat. So talk about disturbing excess. 
his, his story that is one of the only ones I really remember from that time was that he would regularly see someone who was um, there to eat food that before they left, they would vomit somewhere in the restaurant. And I'm, and I'm talking regularly. Like this wasn't just, oh yeah, you know, this happened once when I was working there in the summer. Regularly happened. So I don't know, something about just the mentality of all you can eat and here I am, but yes, there's something weird about our relationship with food. We can get really out of whack and entangled in our relationship with food. There's a book by Rebecca DeYoung called Glittering Vices. She has a chapter on gluttony and she says, Our society invented things like chewing gum so that we can have the pleasant taste that comes from putting something in our mouths and chewing it and swallowing minty saliva without actually taking in any food or calories. Diet Coke has a big zero in every single nutrient category on the label, but it it is the beverage of choice for millions of Americans who choose it precisely for its lack of nutritional content. Modern appetites also drive inventions like Olestra, a fat substitute in products like potato chips that enables us to enjoy their great fatty taste, but which is not itself a digestible substance. She concludes, concludes, we are ingesting substances for the sake of personal gratification, pure and simple. So are we a little messed up and out of whack with our, in our relationship with food? She says this, another quote from Rebecca DeYoung. And this, goes, this takes it a little deeper. As human beings, we are more than just material beings. Satisfying our desire for the pleasure of eating doesn't fill up the whole person. Our spiritual desires are left empty. If we leave those desires unfilled long enough, we tend to lose sight of them and become overly preoccupied with only physical desires in an escalating and futile cycle of avoiding spiritual starvation by indulging ourselves physically. So do you buy it? Do you see it in yourself a little bit? Frederick Buechner is the one who put it this way, just if you want to crystallize it and put it real simply. A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. An icebox is a refrigerator. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so if it's true that we're practically speaking, or maybe metaphorically speaking, we're jamming cotton candy into our spiritual stomach on a regular basis. Um, And we have little grasp over the spiritual dynamics of food. Then what can we do about it? Well, the spiritual tradition over the centuries, the, the centuries of Christian practice give us an answer, and that is in fasting. Fasting. Fasting is an attempt to, for a period of time... An attempt is a key word. An attempt for a period of time to completely rely on your primary spiritual food. And it's what we see Jesus doing in this passage of Luke 4 when the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert 
and he's there for 40 days. That, by the way, is where we get the 40 for the 40 days of Lent. And it does, in fact, if you're curious from the readings, it ties in, and you're supposed to make that link of tying in back to the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert wandering. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the desert, and he fasts. So what do we, what do we learn about fasting? What does fasting do for us? Well, in this story, let's just look at how it highlights our spiritual ap- appetite. So it highlights our spiritual appetite, but it also leads you towards true nourishment. I'm going to fix this thing uh, a second here as we get into that first one. Just have a... Perfect. So it highlights your spiritual appetite and it leads you towards your true nourishment. Let's talk about highlighting our spiritual appetite. There's three appetites, actually, that that are highlighted in Jesus' three temptations. The devil comes and tempts him, first with getting food, then with getting power, and then with getting validation. You know, the food, you got the bread, and then the power, you got this, you know, I'll give you all this authority um, over all these kingdoms, and then you got this validation. Just jump. You know, jump and you'll be caught. You matter so much that God will, God will make sure his angels catch you. So there's actually three appetites highlighted in these temptations. The first one of which is food. And the key, the key thing that we want to draw from and that fasting really learn, that you learn from in fasting is verse 4. Jesus answers using scripture, answers the temptation by saying, from the book of Deuteronomy, which we also read, it is written, people do not live on bread alone. People do not live on bread alone. What's going on with that? Well, Dallas Willard, when talking about fasting, puts it this way. In fasting, we learn how to suffer happily as we feast on God. In fasting, we learn to suffer happily as we feast on God. When a Christian is undergoing a fast, um, there's this sort of like mental loop that happens. It has to happen. And, and fasting triggers it. Um, so when you're fasting, you're, you're often hungry. There's often these sensations of seeing food, smelling food, feeling the growl in your stomach. And so one of those things triggers and starts the loop. And the first thing is, the first part of the loop is, dang, I'm hungry, right? Wow, I want to shove that in my mouth right now. It's that first impulse. And then you go, and then you mentally have to go back and go, why am I doing this? Right? And sometimes a little bitter. What? What? And you come up with reasons why, I, do I really need to do this? <laughs> but why am I doing this? And then, and then you, so then you answer that and you say, oh yeah, okay. God is my primary nourishment. So you think about that. And then, and then hopefully fasting is supposed to drive you to prayer. So then the, the, the kind of the last part of that loop is, okay. God, you know, some kind of prayer that basically says, God, please feed me spiritually. Maybe it involves a reading scripture passage that you've prepared for that loop that's going to happen. But, you know, there's, there's some way of going to God in prayer as a result of it. In fasting, it turns out, so you might, you might have various kinds of God replacements in your life. Food might be used as one of them. So food is a good thing, but it can also be used as a God replacement something that you're trying to fill a God-sized hole that only God can fill and you're using cotton candy. 
So food can be what you try to fill it with, but you can, as we saw in the temptation, it can be all kinds of other things. Satan tries power and validation. You may have others. But here's why fasting is widely practiced, despite the fact that you might have all these other kinds of things that fill that God-sized hole, because it exercises, it's, it's a really easy way to exercise the muscle of self-denial, because food is, is, and that hunger is always before us. It's guaranteed three times, three times a day, if that's the, the number of meals you eat. It's guaranteed three times a day to hit hard. So, Self-denial, that muscle gets exercised. And self-denial connects with all the appetites in our life that we attempt to use and to satisfy in order to fill the God-sized hole in our heart. And so another quote by Dallas Willard, he puts it this way to kind of summarize what I was just saying. Fasting teaches us or teaches temperance or self-control and therefore teaches moderation and restraint with regard to all our fundamental drives. So that is to say, um, Jesus is fasting from food in the desert for 40 days, and he's primed and ready to deal with temptation about any of the appetites, and that's how it works as well with you. If you fast, if you come out of like a 12-hour fast or a 24 or 48-hour or whatever, you come out of it with a little bit of that self-denial muscle having been exercised so that as you realize all these things that you kind of quickly grab hold of and kind of jam into your heart or into your stomach or into your life, and, and you just, you're, you're kind of, you slow down a little bit. You have a tiny bit more self-control and you, you just have a little bit more time where you're stopping and thinking about Wait, is that a, like a God replacement type thing? So it gets you looking at what desires for you in a day, what desires go unchecked and might possibly be functioning as God replacements. Richard Foster put it simply, fasting reveals the things that control us. You know, do I, do I need that whatever, fill in the blank, with something in your life that you're kind of often grabbing hold of, maybe in those times when you feel down, or maybe in those times when you are bored, or maybe in those times when you um, just feel sad. Do I need that? Or do I actually need the nourishment of God's grace? Fasting works on that. But also, fasting leads you then, and I mean, this is kind of goes in order, it leads you, it doesn't just reveal your appetite, it leads you to where you are truly nourished. The third, let's just look at the third temptation that comes at Jesus in verse, at the end of verse 9. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's an interesting scripture that Satan quotes. And it's one in which we spoke in our call to worship this morning. I don't know if you caught that. There's a sense in which the devil is saying to Jesus, you'll never feel more nourished than if you jump off of this right now and experience the validation of God's angels catching you 
nothing will compare with that feeling of validation and knowing that you're a big deal. So that's the temptation. It kind of seems a little strange, but in a, in a way it sort of makes sense because we can all resonate with validation. The twist on that, though, and it's the thing that the devil could never have created or even imagined, is that Jesus' route to truly mattering most was that the angels at God's command were actually going to let go of him and he was going to fall as he went to the cross and died. Jesus doesn't sing Psalm 91 when he's on the cross. That's where that came from, what Satan says, Psalm 91. Jesus says on the cross, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let go of me? For Jesus, his route towards mattering most is actually, in a sense, the opposite of what Satan quote, says is going to really show him that he matters. And so, for Christians, Jesus' body, fallen and broken for us, becomes our true nourishment. Jesus was temporarily let go from God's embrace, from God catching him, so that you could forever permanently be held in God's embrace. You who didn't go out into the desert and come back with a shiny perfection star like Jesus did. Because we don't. When we're in the desert and when we're tested and tempted, we don't. But rather than getting dropped, rather than the angels being called out in a way, we're caught. Why? Because Jesus was let go. So his broken and fallen body becomes our true nourishment. It's all we truly need in this life and the next. He fell so that we could be caught. He, when he goes to the cross, is being let go in our place. He forgoes his right to be caught so that we never have to be let go. And we always get God's embrace. We can always be assured of it if we're looking to God through the lens of the cross of Jesus. So Christians say, and let me turn this way, Christians look at this and say, yes, feed me every week. We do communion here every week. Feed me with... let." The body of Jesus, the broken, fallen body and blood of Jesus, feed me, nourish me. I want more of it. I want to live in God's embrace. Give me more of the bread of life. Which is why I think it's powerful to end a time of fasting with communion. Um, yeah, because then it all really comes together of why you're doing this. Um, Satan is basically saying to Jesus in this third temptation, jump off, you'll be caught, it'll be amazing. And Jesus' answer basically is, it'll be even more amazing for the whole world when I'm not caught. Satan couldn't even predict that, couldn't even see that, he couldn't see that coming at for a second. Fasting. Let me give two basic practical ideas for the season of Lent. Consider fasting. This is, this is what I'm committing to do during the season of Lent is fasting from 
uh, eating lunch on Tuesday all the way till not, uh, or till the next time I eat is um, sometime on Wednesday afternoon. So there's, um, and I know um, David, the other pastor here who's doing the greenhouse um, blanket exercise, he and I often do that together. So that's an idea. If there's any way that that can work for you, and fasting is, is a tricky thing, so it definitely has to, to work and be something you can enter into. But if it does work, Tuesday um, into Wednesday. There's an advantage to doing it, um, to doing it that way. If you start a day and you're just going to fast for a day and you start in the morning, sometimes your body doesn't actually, those normal, like, I need to eat now things don't kick in because you skip the first meal and your body just kind of does something where it doesn't push for those meals as much. So there's something about if you start in the middle of a day um, that you actually have to like battle that out a little more, which you might say, oh, you're crazy, Mark. I want it to be easier. <laughs> Um, but for me, that just it makes it a little more like, um, you know, in your face. And then the other idea would be if there's a way Saturday works, that in some way you can not eat on Saturday, and then when you come to church on Sunday, don't eat in the morning, and then come and have communion. And so this bread dipped in the cup will be the first thing that you put in your mouth after you've been hungering for um, about a day. Those are fasting ideas for Lent. Let's pray together. God of grace, we pray that Lent, and as we dive into it, that it may be so clear that this is a season in which we are looking to find your embrace and find it more richly and truly and deeply by knowing how much we need it, how much we fall, how broken we are. So this is not just a season in which we try to do something to make you happy. We try to go out into our own desert and come back with a ribbon on our chest. But rather, we go out into our own desert just humbled and filled with joy, knowing that you went out perfectly and have given us the secure embrace of your love because of it. Help us this Lent to celebrate you and your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.